We've been talking about the book of Revelation. We've been going through the, the churches. And I want to, before we continue with that, let me put a couple things in perspective. The last several weeks we've been talking about the, that God being hard on the churches. How many have kind of felt that? That God's kind of spanking the churches, giving them a whooping. And I don't want to leave us with just that part of it. I remember when, I was, uh, when we were kids, my brother and I, we would, all, we would get whoopings all the time. How many of you older folks would get whoopings from your... And it was always deserved, you know, we, we deserved it. But I remember us crying and whining and begging not to get whooped. And it would happen anyways, in spite of all the moaning and whining that we did. And then we would have to go to bed and we'd sob and whimper in our beds for a while. But I'd always remember every time that happened, my dad would come in. And if we were awake, he would tell us. If we weren't awake, he would wake us up. And he would say something to the effect, you know, do you know why I gave you a whooping? And we're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because we did whatever. And he says, well, that's part of it. But the real reason is because I want to encourage you that I, I do it because I want it, you to be better. I don't want you to make the choices that you're making now. I want you to grow into a better adult. And I'm trying to correct you to make you better. And I always remember that. It's been a lot of years now. But I think these letters to the churches are the same thing. God's kind of getting their attention, kind of giving some of them a whooping, but he's doing it because he wants to bring them back and make them better and make them who God created them to be. God's correction, God's uh, punishment is always remedial. His desire is to bring us back to where we need to be, not to push us away. So if you feel like God's correcting you or maybe God's speaking to you through these churches, it's out of his love that he does it because he wants to bring you back. He wants you to enjoy what he already has planned for you. He gets no joy out of punishing us. And as parents, we've always said it hurts me more than it hurts you, right? And as kids, we say, you liar. <laughs> but it hurts us different ways. It hurts them physically for a time, but it hurts parents because you don't want to inflict pain in your kids, but you do it for a reason. And God gets no, no joy out of doing it. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. it says, Say to them, as truly as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Can you kind of hear God pleading with them? Look, I don't want to punish you. I don't want to have to put you through this. I want you to make right choices. And as parents, how many times have we pleaded with our kids not to make bad choices? And as they get older, you, you, still, you don't stop being parents. It just changes a little bit. Hebrews 12, verse 5 says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we all have human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, 
but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God didn't care about you. He wouldn't correct you. He wouldn't want to get you back. He'd just let you go. Which is another reason I kind of, I'm so hard on knowing what the Bible says. Because if we don't know it, we may have a warped or distorted view of who God is. And a lot of times we get our view of God from our earthly father. Good or bad. And if your father was an authoritarian, you kind of think of God as an authoritarian. If he was an absent dad, you kind of think of God as an absent God. Right or wrong, that's the way it is. And if you don't have a right perspective of what the Bible says about it, it can lead you straight, it can, it can really ruin your life. I'll, I'll give you an example. This, I, I don't understand this, but this seems to be all the rage now is polygamy. There's a couple of TV shows about it. There's been documentaries about it. There's, there was not only documentaries, but TV shows, you know, scripted shows about that. Polygamy happens when people don't know God's word for themselves. How many know the name Warren Jeffs? Does that sound familiar to you? Warren Jeffs was a guy who called himself God's prophet and that everything that he did was because God was doing it and he was the one that ran that cult and had all kinds of wives and polygamy was rampant there. And the people misunderstood who God was and so they believed what this guy said. And that's just an example of how we need to understand who God is in our life. He's not a, he's not a God out there with a, with a hammer waiting to hammer you down because he enjoys it. He's a father who wants to have you back. As a, as a parent loves a child, he wants to have you back. And he will do what he needs to do to do that. And in these churches, most of them he has to correct. He has to get their attention. He has to kind of scold them and maybe spank them at times. But he needs to do that in order to bring them back so that in the end, they're right with God. When we study these churches or any other topic, we have to remember that God's word is always meant to build us up not tear us down. You may not like what you hear sometimes, and it may challenge what you, what you might believe, but God's desire is to allow us to be blessed and to become the best of what God wants us to be. Now with that as a preface, turn with me to Revelation chapter 3 if you would. And so far we've talked about four of the seven churches in Revelation. Ephesus was the church that lost their first love. Smyrna was the church that was being persecuted from without and Christ commended them for enduring. And we see, and, and we mentioned before that each of these churches represents a church, any church that could be happening right now. There are churches out there that have lost their first love. There are churches that are being persecuted. Pergamum was the church that allowed outside worldly influences to kind of creep into the service and teachings. And there's churches like that today. Thyatira was a church that was being attacked from within. They had a, a group in the church that was kind of trying to take control and teaching false doctrine, and they were kind of spreading. The church wasn't doing anything about it, and so God had to correct them. And there's churches like that today. And that brings us to the church in Sardis. Now, Sardis was about 30 miles south of Thyatira. It was both a wealthy city as well as an important military outbank or outreach, out city. 
It was protected by walls, huge walls that surround the entire city. It had withstood many attacks and was only defeated twice in its, in its history. And amazingly, both of those defeats were not full frontal assaults. Both of those defeats were stealth attacks from unprotected areas in the city. And I thought about that. How does the enemy attack each one of us? Does he full frontal assault you with temptation or does he kind of creep in the back door with subtle temptations? We're not, I don't think anybody here has attempted or been tempted to commit armed robbery or murder or adultery. But we might be tempted to be envious of someone or to want revenge for something or to stare a little bit longer at that person than we should. And what does the Bible say about that? If you look at them too long, you've already committed adultery, right? Those are the ways the enemy comes in, through unprotected areas in our lives. The enemy knows each one of our weaknesses. How many understand that? He knows where you are weak, and he knows where you're easily tempted, and those are the areas that he's going to tempt you. And they may be different than someone else. Every time the city was defeated, it was because they weren't ready for it. And they came in the back door. As Christians, we have to be ready that we're not, not attacked with temptation from the far corner. So the Sardini, I'm going to call them Sardines. The Sardians had lived, had led its people, the, the luxury that they had, everything was affluent, things were going well, rich city, a lot of jobs, they had a lot of possessions. And because of that, they kind of fell away from God. And it led them into moral decadence. Does that sound familiar? Once the city started to really prosper and accumulate wealth and possessions, they began to live like everybody else around them, all the other cities around them. And just like Old Testament Israel, when God blessed them, what happened? They forgot God. When things are going great and God's really pouring out his blessings and things are just, you're just... Everything's going great. All of a sudden, you kind of forget God. Because you don't need God right now. Everything's going good. Things are lining up right. And that's exactly what was happening to the city. Now, the people in the city at this particular time, they were, we'll call them second generation wealthy. In other words, they didn't work for it. They inherited it from the parents who worked or the grandparents who worked. William Barclay, one commentator, says it this way. This was a city of peace. Not peace won through battles, but the peace of the man whose dreams are dead. Minds are asleep, or the man who lives with the peace of lethargy. They no longer had a struggle or a claw to get what they want. They had everything. They didn't have to work for it. They simply enjoyed the benefits without appreciating how those benefits were attained. A lot of folks enjoy the benefits of this country without realizing the, what it took to attain those benefits. Generations are gone who have had to fight to ensure our freedom. I don't think there's too many World War II folks that are left. I heard one commentator say it this way, and I never, I, this kind of caught my attention. He says, since our country is at peace with pretty much everybody, in other words, we're not in World War II, we're not in Korea, we're not in Vietnam, we're not... Are, we don't have a common enemy. We're not fighting as a country as a common enemy. 
And when we don't have a common enemy, we need to find an enemy. And so we turn on ourselves and we begin to fight ourselves, which I think is happening right now. This is what this city was like. They had affluence, they had wealth, but they did not have God. So Revelation 3, chapter 1, or yeah, verse 1 says this. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we're going to do this like we do all the other ones. Look at it verse by verse. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Remember, way back in Ephesus, we said that the stars are the pastors or the leaders of these churches, and he's holding them in his hand. The preachers are responsible for the, to the Lord. He placed them there. He holds them in his hand. If you hold something in your hand, you control it and you possess it. Jesus says, I'm holding them, I own them, I possess them, and I control them. Or at least they should want to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. The, the holding in his hand also symbolizes a desire to help them in their walk. Now, if you have little kids, when I hold my granddaughter's hand or my grandson's hand, I'm holding them to protect them, to guide them, and to let them feel assured that I'm with them. If they start to walk away into harm's way, I grip it tighter and I pull them back. My hand grip is not to punish them, it's to guide them, protect them, and keep them where they need to be. God still cares for this church. He's holding them, and even though he's rebuking them, his desire is to bring them back. Don't go that way, you need to come back. And you will see that there's not too many in this church that actually wanted to be brought back. This church was almost too far gone. So what are the seven spirits of God? What are they? Isaiah gives us insight into that. Isaiah 11 verse 2 says, The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding and of counsel and of power, knowledge, fear the Lord. These are all traits that every church should possess. The Holy Spirit should be present. The Holy Spirit should give leaders and people wisdom, understanding, counsel, power, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. That's not just preachers, that's everybody. Every church should operate in that way and every person should have those in their life. Jesus is saying, I'm holding the pastor's hand, but I also hold everything that you need to make you a true church. If you don't possess these things as a church, you might not be a church. You might be a club. If you don't have the Spirit of the Lord, then why are we meeting? And you need to have the Spirit of wisdom, 
when you hear God's word and read God's word and you operate in real life, you need to have understanding of what God's word says. You need to have the spirit of counsel. In other words, you're able to help people with what you know about God's word. And you need to have the spirit of power. What do we do that we trust God for, for the power of God to work? And we need to have the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And what does that do? If you have the fear of the Lord, what does that say? It's the beginning of what? Wisdom. And now you're back at the beginning. So it's kind of a circle. All these things are continuous. Jesus controls the power that every church needs to succeed. If we as a church, if we don't operate in these things, then we are, we're wasting our time, basically. Because we need the Holy Spirit to work. We need the Holy Spirit to work through our worship, work through us when we worship, and work through what we say. And the Holy Spirit has to be in you to receive what is said. When we pray, we pray that God speaks through me and that God anoints you to hear what he is saying. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible and we want him to basically tell us what it says. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And this church had that at the beginning, but it appears that they no longer have that. Because verse 1 continues, it says, I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. How many people you know that walk around, they look like Christians, they act like Christians, but they're not Christian? That was me. For the first three years when we got married, everybody thought I was a Christian because I was a nice guy, I went to church, I did everything right. But I wasn't. Everyone thought I was, but God saw through it, knew I wasn't. God is able to see through the exterior and he sees what's in your heart. This church at one time was a very on-fire church. They were, they were the center of what God was doing. And they had a reputation in town. They, everyone knew this church. They had a reputation for what God did. They had a great move of God, but the problem was they were living 30 years ago. They were living on what God did in the past. The exterior, the building and what was going on was, was seen by outsiders as a great work, but, and they were still a large church, a lot of people attended there, a lot, of, a lot of activities going on, and the community thought it was a great place to be. The problem was they, were, they no longer had a zeal for God and they weren't doing anything new for God. They were doing the things that they did 30, 20 years ago, and they're living on their reputation. And when you build, live on your reputation, now you become a slave to your reputation. In other words, what do other people think of us? We want to build a reputation. We want to have a good reputation in the community, right? We want people to know that we're here. We want people to think we're a good church and every church should do that. But in the process of trying to build a reputation and be liked by everyone and respected by everyone, it's easy to become like everyone. If you want people to like you, you want to be like them, so they like you. And this church had the problem of no longer wanting to know what God's doing. Their desire for a good reputation was more important than compromising God's word. And that's what they were doing. In other words, they were almost stopping being a church. They were now being a social club because it called for them to compromise their belief in order to maintain their reputation. People in the time were remembering what the church had done in the past 
And the church people liked being a part of, quote, the big church. The church that God moved in however many years ago. The problem was, they weren't doing anything for God. They were living in the past. The services were said to be alive. The Bible says you have a reputation of being alive. In other words, you've got, you got a lively service, lots of music, a lot of activities going on, but you just don't have anything spiritual going on. There's a lot of things out there that are lively, a lot of music, excitement, and, and singing, but is anything spiritual going on? Is God transforming lives? In other words, they were singing the songs, but they weren't worshiping. They were hearing the message, but they weren't listening to it. And the messages probably included more about the community than it did about God. Jesus said the church had a reputation, but in reality it was spiritually on life support. They were no longer having a, a positive spiritual influence in, the, in society. They weren't being salt and light. They wanted to be liked. They wanted to be admired. And so what they didn't do, they didn't rock the boat with the community. They did everything that the community liked. They were, you ever hear the phrase, go along to get along? I actually looked that phrase up. And according to a psychology magazine, it says this, go along to get along leads to more of the same. Caving into social pressure from something as simple as saying you love a movie because your friends do, to participating in criminal activity to cement membership in a gang. Both of those create good feelings about being part of a group. This according to a new study that shows that this caving in also produces more of the same behavior. So the church was caving in to the pressures of the town to have their reputation maintained. And what's it do? It's now creating more of the same behavior. They're becoming like everybody else around them. They were no different than any other club in the town. You ever heard the expression, peace at any cost? Neville Chamberlain, is that name ring a bell? World War II, Neville Chamberlain wanted, didn't want to go to war, he wanted peace, man, I just want, I just want to have peace. And he goes and he, he sits down with Hitler and they sign his peace accord and, and he walks out going, we got peace, there's gonna be peace in our time and we all know what happened with that. Not long after that, he broke the treaty. Why? Because they weren't willing to stand up for it. They weren't willing to take a stand and they knew that there's not going to be peace at any cost. As a church, we want the community to know that we're here and we want them to know that we love them, but we, ha we cannot cave on what we believe in order to appease the people around us. And this church had done exactly that. They had given up any kind of spiritual influence in their life in order to maintain the reputation that they had in town. Peace at any cost is saying that we want peace with someone so bad that we're willing to compromise anything and everything just so we don't make you mad. We want to have a good reputation in our time. We want people in Dover to know that we're here and we love them and care for them, but we're not willing to sacrifice who we are to get it. Luke 6.26 says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. I like the New Living Translation. It says this, What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds? For their ancestors also praised false prophets. 
Galatians 5.11, Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. And again, the New Living Translation says this, The fact that I'm still being persecuted proves that I'm still preaching salvation through the cross of Christ alone. We don't become offensive. The Bible says, if it's all possible with you, live with peace with anyone. I think that was in your sermon last week. But what we preach is going to offend. And we can't dilute what we preach and what we believe in order to not offend people. And that's the big thing today, right? Offense. Everybody's offended at something. And the gospel is, has always been offensive. Not the way we say it, not how we preach it, just the truth is offensive. Standing up, for, this is more true today than I think it's ever been. Standing up for truth will offend people. And there's, there's so many things in society today that are just insane. Any normal person looking at it would just say it's crazy. And when you start to say truth to something, this is, a, this is the truth that's being debated. Men can have babies. And there's people and there's blogs and there's articles saying that they can. And when you say you can't, they're offended. Truth offends people. But we stand up to truth anyways. It doesn't say that we as people are offensive. It says that the preaching of the truth is offensive. So when we stand up for truth, don't be surprised if someone is offended at what you say. I like this next verse. Revelation 3.2. Wake up. Wake up is what he's saying. You ever, when your kids are teenagers, not so much when they're little, when they're teenagers and they sleep all day long, you ever go into the room quietly and like on a school day and say, hey, time to get up. Go on, get up. Yeah, yeah, okay, I'm getting up. You walk out and five minutes later, they're still sleeping. Come on, time to get up, time to get up. And then finally, you, you walk in, you flip the lights on and say, get up, time to get up, right? That's exactly what God's saying to the church. He's not, he's not nudging them. He's not whispering, he's saying, get up. Wake up to what's going on around you. Don't you see what you've gone too far? You guys are in bad shape. You're almost totally gone, but you're not. And if you don't wake up soon, it's going to be too late for you. You're going to be totally gone. We know people that have been in church for a while, maybe some still attend, but their walk is nowhere near where it used to be. Man, they were on fire for God at some point, but at some point, they just kind of mellowed out. And those are the people you want to shake and say, wake up, wake up, where are you? Don't you know what you were like before? You're almost walking away from God. And if you don't wake up and change, you're going to miss it. We've been talking about, or we finished with eternal security last week on Wednesdays, but talking about walking away from your faith, having a great faith and eventually walking away. And that's exactly what this church is doing. And that's exactly what they're talking to the people in the church about. Look, you're walking away from God and I'm trying to catch you before you go off the cliff. But if you go too far, you're not gonna make it back. 
He's telling them, snap out of it, wake up. Man, did you put all the scriptures in there? Because this is a two-parter, but I'm almost done with the first part. The phrase, wake up. It's like the key phrase of that. And I wrote down here, do I have your attention? You always say, yeah. Good, because we're going to finish this in two weeks. Because I'm not going to be here next week. We're taking the kids to convention. We may or may not bring them home, depending on how they behave. We may or may not make it home if we take the church van, but we're going to trust God. Let me close with this. Have you found yourself going along with the world in order to get along with the world? Do you find yourself doing things that maybe five years ago you didn't really do because you were convicted of it? But now you're kind of doing it because you no longer feel that and, well, everyone else seems to be doing it. If you find yourself compromising in order to keep your reputation or to keep your standing with your friends and your family, then maybe you need to wake up. Now we're going to see later on in this church that compromise that they were doing was endangering them having their names removed from the book of life. Right? Another example of how someone who is a believer can walk away. And if we think we're doing okay and we think we're, we're okay, we're just, we're just becoming more like the world, we just want to reach people, the difference is we have to be different than them. If we are the same as them, when tragedy or something comes in their life that they need help from, they're not going to go to someone who is just like them. They're going to want somebody who is different from them, who may have a different outlook on things. I remember my, when I first got saved and I was a Christian in, in my office in Pittsburgh, two things I remember. Not long after I got saved, someone came up to me and they said, are you one of those born-again guys? And I didn't know anything in the Bible, but I remembered this verse. God brought to my mind, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. Now, where that came from? You know, God put it in my head. So I bit my tongue and said, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And so it spread like wildfire. Everybody in the office knew within 30 seconds that I was this born-again dude. But after a few months, there was a lady in our office, single girl, about my age at that time. And uh, she said, Jeff, can, we, can I talk to you? I said, yeah, sure. And she was single and she was pregnant. And she says, you know, I, I noticed that you're, you're different than everybody else here. Can I, can I ask you some questions about this? I need, I need some help you know, about what God may want from this. And then we, we talked, but the difference was she saw something in me. I don't know what it was that was different. People are looking for something that's different. If you're like everybody else, then you've got the same thing that everybody else has. They've got nothing to get, offer. But if you have a walk with God and you, and you trust God and they see that in you, when the time comes, when they have troubles, they're going to ask you, what can I do? You're, you're close to God. What does he say about this? And it's your perfect opportunity to share Christ with them. They may never walk in a church, but you're going to have an influence in their life. And the only way you're going to do that is if you 
You have a good reputation, but your reputation includes the fact that you're not going to compromise on what you believe. What do, what do people hate most about politicians? Is they, they don't know where they're going to stand. Well, that's a whole list of things. But no one knows where they stand because they're wishy-washy, right? You know, they stick a finger in the ear and they figure out what the ways of wind blowing and that's where they're going to go. The people that you like and you admire are the people that no matter what happens to them, they're still going the same way. They're still going to make the same choices, the same decisions, regardless of what's going on around them. And you, you admire that in them because they are sticking to their convictions. When people look at Christians, what's the first thing they say? That we're a bunch of hypocrites. Because we say one thing and live a different way. That may or may not be true. But people are going to notice when it is true. I remember back in my job, I remember we were selling beepers. Remember, before cell phones came out, we had beepers. We were selling beepers. And what we would do is we would refurbish them. We would put a new case on it and refurbish it and sell it. And I remember I, I told a customer once that it was a new pager. I lied. And boy, that office knew that within a nanosecond. You are a Christian and you lied to this customer. And they never forgot it. We have to watch how we live. Because people are watching you. And they want to see in you what, if you really believe what you say or not. And this church was doing none of it. They were being hypocritical. They were saying one thing and living a total different way. And if it's addressed to this church, it could be addressed to any church, any individual. We put on a good show, we act like Christians, but in our daily walk, we're not. There's a saying that says, if being a Christian were illegal, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Do people know that you're a believer? And do they know that because of how you act around them more than what you say around them? Would you stand as we close this morning? Well, it's a good thing because I didn't bring my other seven pages of notes anyways. Bow your heads with me for a moment. Gil mentioned last week that uh, prophecy seems to be on the forefront right now. And I believe that that's because God's trying to get the church's attention, just like he did these seven churches. He wants us to be prepared for what's coming. It could be the rapture. It could be persecution. But are we ready for it? Are we ready to take a stand in spite of what may be going on around us? The Bible talks about the, the ten virgins. Five of them had oil, five of them didn't. Five of them weren't ready. And five of them didn't make it. They're all in the same boat, but they weren't prepared. God wants us to be prepared. That means we have to examine our life. Where are we in our walk with God? 
Do we talk a good game, but we live how we want to live? We already saw that God breaks through and he sees through all the things that we say and what we do. What's your life like? And only you can answer that. Because everybody else may think that you're a Christian. Like everybody else thought I was. Only you can answer that question. If you examine yourself, the Bible says examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. And if you're not, then God's trying to get your attention. The Bible says later on in this church that he will keep your name in if you repent. Which means if you don't, he'll take it out. And none of us want that. We want to be assured that when our time comes, we're ready. Whether it's a rapture, whether it's persecution, whether it's death, we're ready. We had a lot of folks this week who went to be with Jesus. Praise God that they were ready. But how many people die every day who aren't? I don't want anyone here to not be ready. If you're here this morning, you've never really committed your life to Christ, or maybe you find yourself in a position that you've walked away from Christ. Yeah, I used to be, and I do it once in a while, but yeah, I'm becoming like everything around me. And the Bible says today's, today's the day. You need to make it right. Don't walk out of here thinking you'll do it next week. The Bible says today is a day of salvation. It's also the day of repentance. No one's guaranteed tomorrow. You need to make it right right now. Father, thank you. Thank you for getting our attention. Thank you for telling us to wake up. Wake up. I pray that each one of us here would be awoken by your Holy Spirit and drawn in so that our lives would be a reflection of what we really know to be true. It's one thing to know it, Lord. It's another to live it. And I pray that each one of us here would walk out with the Spirit of God in us, the Spirit of wisdom and knowledge and power and anointing so that, Lord, we are living a life that we say we believe. I pray for each person here that, God, you would anoint them as the word says, with ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. And the Holy Spirit will tell you what you need to hear. So Father, I commit each person to you. You take care of them, you bless them, you draw them to yourself, and you allow them to experience the power of God in their life on a daily basis. And Father, we do it all in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. See you Wednesday night.